Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant, and if you're here for the first time visiting, we're, we're glad that you're with us. Thanks for joining us this morning. We're in a series on the book of Mark. We're looking uh, this semester at Mark chapter 1 through 9, the first or through 8, the first half of the book of Mark, talking about this, that Jesus is the King, the King has come. So we've been learning about this king and what it means that he has come and broken into this world. So uh, we're going to be taking a look this morning at Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. If you happen to be using a blue chair Bible, you'll find that on page 840 of that Bible. If you need a Bible, there should be one in a seat somewhere in front of you. Uh, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll dive right in. Let's pray together. Father, we come to your word this morning and even into this uh, service this morning. Many of us are just plain tired. Would you encourage us? Would you wake us up? Would you remind us of your presence? Would you speak to us? Um, some of us come this morning just confused about the events of our lives. Some of us come struggling with many things on the outside. Some come struggling with many deep things on the inside. Would you meet us today? You are Savior and Lord and King. Open our eyes as we read your word Speak to us in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They, Jesus and his disciples, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, crying out with a loud voice. He said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Get out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and they entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and they were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to see Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us for our good and for his glory. Last week, I uh, looked at the second half of uh, chapter 4 of Mark, and, and Camper preached on that passage, a sermon called the, the King of the Storm, talking about the disciples as they were traveling to, to this scene right here, across the Sea of Galilee, heading towards the east side. There was this incredible storm that came and nearly killed them all until Jesus, the Lord of the storm, stood up and said, Peace, be still. And everything was quiet. 
One of the things that we looked at was the fact that uh, many of us may very well feel in that place in life where it feels like there are things that are just assaulting us from the outside, coming from every angle, about to crush us. Jesus, the Lord of the storm, speaks into that. What we see here today is the second part of that, where Jesus again stills a storm, but this time of a very different kind. As he was traveling across the sea, it came by the hand of nature, and it came in a power that was about to crush them all from the outside. But here we see a storm in this man's life that is on the inside and is threatening to crush him from inside, to suck him dry and leave him dead. That's what's happening here. And Jesus, this Lord of the storm, steps into this man's life as well. So we're going to see this morning that Jesus is the king of our inner storms as well as our outer storms, and that no enemy can assault us that he cannot overcome. So we're going to see that here as we look at three things. We're going to see a tormented man in this passage and our supernatural enemy and our liberating king. So those three things. First, this tormented man. The first five verses gives up. The description of this man and this uh, in the, the condition that he's in. And it is one of the most frightening scenes in the whole Bible. Now, I, I realize there, there are some of you that just love to watch horror movies. I don't understand. I don't know why you do this to yourself. Uh, I, can't, I can't do that. As soon as the spooky music comes on, I'm done. Like, you don't even have to show me anything. It's over. Uh, some of you guys love that, but this, this has that sort of feel of something that is out there that is just overpowering and frightening. Okay, for those of us with kids, if kids came home from Sunday school and said, you know, Miss Marty today, she pulled out, uh, you know, the, the felt board flanograph thing where we do the Bible stories and she put the scary naked demon possessed guy up there. <laughs> Your children would not sleep tonight and you would not send them back to Sunday school. This is... You know, we laugh, but this is really one of those stories. That's how dark it is. That's what's going on with this man. Jesus and his disciples, these good good Jewish people, come over to this side of the Sea of Galilee into Gentile, non-Jewish territory. And so as soon as they step onto the ground here, they are in... Uh, unclean territory, ceremonially unclean territory. This is not where God's good people go. Things are defiled here. The Gentiles, good Jews thought, you know, you can't even really associate with Gentiles. Certainly never touch one because it will ceremonially defile you. So you've got Gentiles here. You've got them in in the midst of uh, uh, this enormous herd of pigs, which no good Jew would ever get near because it was one of the unclean animals. That was something you would never be near. And it takes place in the tombs, the place of the dead. And if in Jewish law, if you were to even touch a dead body, you would become ceremoniously unclean. This is a place of, of darkness, of everything falling apart. And look at the man here who comes to greet them. As soon as they step foot, this uh, crazed man comes out to them. Someone who is, um, he's fragmented. He's fallen apart from the inside out. You have somebody here that is, we're going to talk in a minute, who has been overrun with spiritual powers of darkness. He is, he is possessed by demons. And he's ripped off his clothes. And, and anytime somebody tries to bind him, he tears off the chains and the shackles. Nothing can contain him. He's got supernatural strength. But he is tortured. He spends the, he spends the nights uh, roaming through the hills and through the tombs, crying out, bruising himself with stones. He is on the verge of self-destructing. He's a man in utter torment. He is dangerous to himself and to everyone else around him. And here we have an, an incredibly 
poignant and sharp picture of the image of God being just utterly destroyed in someone. If you remember in Genesis chapter 1, as God creates mankind, he says this, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And that the Bible's whole picture of who we are as human beings is based on this, that we're made in God's image, that we mirror him to the world, that we are not only physical but spiritual beings, that we are made to relate to God, that we, that we make his presence known in the world. And as we know from the Bible, that that image of God has been, has been fractured by the sin that has entered the world and is alive in our hearts. But that image still remains. People have dignity and worth because they're created in the image of God. But here we see someone where this image, it, it just feels like it is almost entirely rubbed out. He is in the possession of something that has taken over him. He's trying to destroy himself. He has been alienated from God, from his community, and from himself. He can't even control himself. It is the image of God in him just literally falling apart. And you know what it's like when, um, when, we, when we think about this idea of, of images and how they represent something that has power. Uh, you know what it's like when you've seen an image defaced. And, and, and maybe you've done this. Go back and look in your second grade uh, you know, yearbook. And you, if you want to remember who the kids were that you didn't like, flip open the page and they're the ones with the little horns drawn on there and the mustaches, right? Some of you have done this. Or, you know, maybe you've seen somewhere, you've seen a political poster and somebody who didn't like that candidate came up and defaced the, uh, the poster. Why? Because, because they like just drawing on a silly piece of paper? No, because there's symbolic value there. You're saying, I hate this and everything it represents. And that is exactly what Satan is doing to this man. I hate God and everything that reflects him, and I'm doing everything that I can to rub it out. That is what is happening in this man's life. You know, Jesus, as we said, and and his disciples have just come across the sea. They've just survived an incredible storm on the sea. And seeing Jesus' amazing power to still it, and they come right into the middle of a different kind of storm, the one raging inside of this man. And it's pitiable. One commentator says this, This is one of the most lamentable stories of human wretchedness in the Bible. He is a terror to himself and to others. Okay, that is the man standing on the bank waiting for Jesus. We see this tormented man. But secondly, we see here our supernatural enemy. Because there is something deep and dangerous going on here. We... um, uh, th- theologians, it, at least since the Middle Ages, have used kind of this grid to talk about the things that, that we wrestle with and assault us in life. We talk about our, our war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay, in other words, uh, our world all around us is broken. The systems of our world are broken, and we are caught up in those. And our flesh, our, our, sin, the sinful part, our sinful nature in us that's warring against us. And then thirdly, the devil. That there is a real supernatural, external to us enemy. And and maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking it's really honestly hard for you to believe that there really could be a a personal, real, supernaturally evil enemy that Scripture calls Satan. And you just have trouble believing that that could exist. Well, let me just put it this way. Why? Because you've never seen him? Can't believe in things you don't see? There are a lot of reasons people wrestle with, and I don't want to minimize that, but let let me just say this. If you've gotten to the point where you believe or think you possibly could believe in the existence of a supernatural personal good called God that we find in the pages of Scripture, is it such a stretch 
to imagine that there is personal evil as well. And Scripture tells us that there, there is. That there is more to what's going on in this world and all its brokenness than only our sin and only the brokenness of the world around us. We have a real enemy. That's what Scripture tells us. Or maybe you look at this and just think, okay, here's a story about Jesus. He comes, and there's this man who is tormented by something. And, of course, you know, people with their sort of uh, primitive, pre-modern, pre-medical kind of view of life, they attribute this to demons. This is something. This person came in, talked to a doctor or a psychiatrist. They would, uh, you know, they would diagnose him with one of any uh, various you know, mental diseases, and they, and they would treat him that way. And because people, uh, you know, before the advent of modern science, they were just naturally sort of superstitious people. We don't hold it against them. Bless their hearts. They were doing the best they could, right? <clears throat> well, the Bible's picture of what's going on here, on here is, is, is more complex and nuanced than that. It's not simply a matter of, okay, there are health issues out there and they're caused by demons and we need to be exercised of them. They, they, had a, they had a broad category for the things that assault us. In many ways, broader categories and more nuanced categories than we do because maybe we simply have physical ailments and nothing wider than that. Listen to what Ma- uh, Matthew chapter 4 says. This is a scene where, where crowds of people are coming to Jesus in order to be healed. And listen to what they bring to him. It says, They brought him all the sick, And those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Do you hear all the classifications of people that come to him? He comes and heals people who are sick, disease. And he comes and brings deliverance to people who come, who are in the grips of a real and supernatural evil. Okay, their their picture was not a simple one of an ancient worldview that is incomprehensible to us, they looked at the complexity of the world and gave credence to the fact that as there is spiritual good in reality, there's spiritual harm out there as well. And the Bible presents that to us, that we have a real enemy. Uh, you may be familiar with the book Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, and it's a book about give and take between a, a senior demon and his protege as they're talking about the case he's been assigned to uh, tempt and destroy this person that this one has been assigned to. And in the preface of Screwtape Letters, it says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors, and they hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Depending on when you've lived in the centuries, you would have been brought up believing either Supernatural evil is real and we need to be careful. Or, of course, it's ridiculous because we know things are only materialistic at the end. And he says that Satan doesn't care which of those errors we fall into. If we're overly obsessed or we don't give it any credence at all because he can use either one of those to bring our harm and destruction. And that's what is happening with this man. He is being destroyed. Uh, The Bible tells us that Satan is real and he's powerful, but we do not live in a dualistic world where there is this good power on the one hand and this evil on the other, and they are equally matched, and they are warring throughout the centuries, and one day one will win. I wonder which one will. See, the Bible tells us of a good and holy God who is the creator and sustainer of all things, who stands over everything, and though there is real evil, it is under the thumb of our God, and Scripture tells us will not ultimately win, but it is real. This is what Peter warns his people of in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. This man has been possessed by this kind of supernatural evil. And when Jesus comes and speaks to him and he says, what is your name? He says, my name is Legion. And in the Roman Legion, it was their, their largest military grouping and it varied somewhat throughout history. But it was in the neighborhood of 6,000 soldiers. That's what a legion was. It doesn't mean there were necessarily 6,000 demons in this man, but there was something going on because when they are cast out, 2,000 pigs plunge to their death. This man is in the grip of enormous evil, tearing him apart. Now, it's, it's a little hard, even if you grant maybe the reality of supernatural evil, to think, okay, we read the story, what are we supposed to do with this? Because m- most of us don't know and never will come in contact with somebody where we go, okay, that, that is... That is demon possession. That is it in all its magnitude. And it really exists. Most of us will never come in contact with that. But what has this got for us? Well, for one thing, we see in the pages of Scripture that Satan would come and destroy us any way he can. And we have an extreme picture of Satan's influence in someone's life right here. But in some ways, there is a spectrum to this. As we are all in danger of being assaulted and grabbed hold of by the power of Satan. Now, let, let, let me explain what I mean by that. There, there's this interesting place in Ephesians 4 where it speaks, where it's, it's Paul is speaking to uh, a church community, and he's talking about the things that can tear you apart as a community. He warns them about the danger of what they do with their anger. Now, listen, listen to what he says here in Ephesians 4. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. If you're reading the NIV, it says something like this. Give no foothold to the devil. You know what a foothold is? If you're, if you're climbing something and you're, you're, you're about as high as you can go, if you can find a foothold, just someplace to stick your toe in, then you can have a firm base by which you lift yourself up further. You go further. You achieve more. And he says, when you, do, when you give yourself away to your anger, you are giving the devil a foothold in your life and in your community. He's not saying you're possessed like this man with the legion, but he's saying you have begun to walk along the path of what Satan would do to tear you and everyone else around you apart because he is an enemy that comes after all of us. You see, we have an enemy who wants to destroy us, and as Paul reminds us, don't give him a foothold. Paul brings it up in the context of anger. We get into these situations with each other, and we think, you know, this is just, this is just a disagreement or, or, you know, an argument with somebody. It's not something cosmic, not something the devil would use to exploit in our own hearts and our community. Really? Or, you know, anger, because as we see here, anger has to be dealt with, or it festers and it grows and it poisons us and those around us. Maybe it plays out this way. Your spouse says something to you that just stings a little bit, a little barb that's a little too sharp. You don't talk about it, you don't confront it, you don't forgive it, and it festers. And then the next time uh, there's conflict with your spouse, maybe you're just a little bit harsher, a little bit quicker to see the fault in your spouse. And it grows, and you soon find yourself using these extreme phrases with your spouse that you never did before. You always, fill in the blank, you never Fill in the blank. Everything becomes extreme, and eventually you think, how did I ever marry this person? What was I thinking? Maybe it's not your spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's somebody at work. Maybe it's somebody in your church home group. 
And all the while, Satan's smiling as he finds a foothold in your life, uh, a foothold in your family, a foothold in our church. Or take something else like, like grumbling and complaining. And maybe use phrases like this, as I did this week. Uh, you know, I'm just venting a little bit, right? You know, the whole idea with venting is there's, there's something explosive there. And if we can just open up the vents and get it out, it'll just disappear and everything will be okay. And so you begin to vent about what's going on in your life. And is it, is it getting better? You know, maybe you come and you feel like you come to this situation, you've got this backpack on and it's full of rocks and you're just venting you're just, and you start just taking those rocks out so that you can lighten the load. And on and on you go. Does, did the load really get lighter? Or did you find you were actually putting more rocks in than you realized, even as you spoke? That that grumbling begins to come and take us over. Does it really help or does it drive the stake of your discontentment that much deeper into your heart? And give the devil a foothold. Or a million other things. Your critical spirit. How about this? Our addictions. I don't have a problem with pornography. It's just a few pictures on the internet. It's not something serious and about my heart. Certainly not about Satan. I don't have a problem with eating. I'm just going to the refrigerator to take a little bit of the edge off the stress. It's food. It's not my heart that's at stake here. You know, I'm not a people pleaser. I'm not enslaved to the fear of man. I'm just utterly exhausting myself to fit in and keep everyone around me happy and happy and smiling so they'll think well of me. But I'm not enslaved by that. It's not Satan getting a hold. and Really? All of it. Giving Satan a foothold in our lives. You know, we see this picture of this tormented man. And we see here this supernatural enemy that lies behind it brings up this question, what is our hope? What are we going to do with that and against an enemy like that? When you go to the computer, when you go to the refrigerator, when you let the angry words fly, what are we going to do? Try harder. Just a little bit harder this time. You know, the chains didn't hold you last time, but, but maybe this time the shackles will stay in place and won't go crying and screaming out into the tombs. Just try harder. How's that working for you or for me? How are we going to break this kind of power in, the, in our lives? We see here in this passage and throughout Scripture that we can't. We can't. We need a liberating king to come and set us free. And that's exactly what happens to this man This demoniac, as he is liberated and freed by Jesus the King. Now, did you pick up on the fact, again, if you were to read through chapter 4 and chapter 5, you'd see the flow of Jesus' ministry. He's he's healing, he's preaching. He decides to go to the other side of the the Sea of Galilee. So they travel, they have a storm, they show up on the the shore for our uh, story. And then at the end of this, he goes back. What was he doing? What was all of this about? I think Mark is telling us that Jesus left the other side of the sea and came here because he had an appointment to keep with a crazed, tormented, demoniac who called himself Legion. And he was coming into unclean territory to set this man free. That's why he came. That's why he went through the storm. And he shows up here for this express purpose to meet this man and set 
him free. A freedom that he could not, this man could not bring to himself. Nobody else could help him either. Do you notice in here in verse 3 it says that, that no one could bind him any longer. It sounds like maybe there's something progressive here. There was a, there was a while in which this man, you know, if you tried hard enough you could restrain him. But he got to the point where he was utterly uncontrollable. No one could hold on to him. No one could help him. Everyone ran in terror anytime he came near them. And Jesus steps onto the shore, and what does he do? Same thing you and I would do. Turn around and flee in terror. Boys, get the boats. We're getting out of here. No. What does he do? He stops this man in his tracks. And he speaks a word. And like that, he sets him free. See, if you were to go back, we have examples of ancient texts that talk about exorcisms, about driving out demons. And in these texts, by and large, what you see is that the exorcist, the person driving out the demon, using complicated formulas and, and these you know, sort of uh, you know, words and phrases that are meant to have the power to drive out the demon. Or they will be calling on a higher power to come and affect the exorcism, to drive the demon out of this person. But Jesus doesn't do any of that. No magic, no magic formulas. What does he say? What is your name? Go. Be gone. And at a word, this man is set free. He's come in the presence of a king, the only king, the only one who has the power to do what he most needed. And he finds this king not only willing, but eager to come and provide that very thing that he needs. This kind of forgiveness, this kind of cleansing, this kind of healing. He brings it in a moment. One of the strange parts of the story is, is all the pigs. You know, here we see this herd of 2,000 pigs, and they say, can, we, can you send us into them? And Jesus says yes. And so, so they go into those pigs, and it drives them absolutely mad, and they go plunging themselves into the sea. And the violence and dis, just disturbing nature of that scene, that's what was going on inside of this man. And we look and see things like, you know, Oh, these poor pigs. Uh, you know, the, the herders there looked and thought economic devastation. Incredible wealth suddenly thrown into the sea. And Jesus doesn't comment on it. But it does leave us with at least this. Seemingly to Jesus, even wealth like this is as nothing compared to the value of a human soul. He came to this place to forgive and heal and free this man. He does whatever it takes to provide that healing for him. And what's the result? Remember when Jesus was in the midst of this sea that threatened to tear apart the boat in chapter 4. It says that he stands up in the middle of the storm and he says, Peace, be still. And suddenly the storm is gone, the winds grow still, and everything is calm. At a word. He comes into this situation and he speaks a word. Look at how this man is described afterwards. It says afterwards, there the man was and he was clothed and he was in his right mind and he was seated at the feet of Jesus. Utterly at peace now. Utterly transformed. A storm had been stilled. And this man's very heart has been changed because he comes to Jesus, verse 18, and he says, I, he says, I, I want to be with you. This is the same language 
of discipleship that Mark's used earlier. When Jesus called the disciples and he said he, he called them so that they might be with him, so that they might learn his life, so that they might know him and be in relationship with him. That, that's the language that this man uses. I want to be with you. Jesus says, no, you can't follow me like that right now. But instead, I'm giving you another assignment. I am making you the first missionary to the Gentiles. Go into the Decapolis, the ten cities of this region, and tell them everything that God has done for you. Tell them what the Lord has done for you. And he does. He goes and he tells everyone about Jesus. He utterly changes this man's life. But I'll tell you, Mark tells it to us for a couple reasons. One, he is using this as a picture to show us that when Jesus the King comes, He comes that He might break the back of Satan and defeat evil. This is a picture of Jesus' kingdom coming in all its power and Satan and all that follow Him running in defeat. But you and I look around, though, and we still very much see the ravages of Satan in the world around us and in our own lives. Um, what do we do with that? I got in a conversation with one of my kids this past week, um, sitting on, on their bed and having trouble sleeping. I went talk talked to him and said, you know, what, why are you having trouble sleeping? And kind of went back and forth and finally said, well, you know, well, I was, I was looking at these pictures in, in my Bible. Uh, up until now, we have had the very rated G children's Bibles in our, in our, in our house. And uh, somebody gave uh, one, one of our kids this, this picture Bible that's sort of the PG, maybe PG-13 version. And she'd been looking in the back and saw all the pictures in Revelation. And, you know, red seven-headed dragons and all kinds of crazy, scary stuff. And showed it to me, and I was like, yeah, that's frightening. Um, <laughs> and so what I did is I began to tell my child, well, here's what happens. Actually, I know it's hard to tell from this picture. The book of Revelation is this book of incredible hope. Because it shows us that we've got this real enemy. But in the end, Jesus defeats it completely obliterates it and totally frees us that we can now finally be free and safe. That happens. And so you see, when Jesus steps onto the, onto the beach in this scene, he is showing that his victory over Satan is won in principle. He has come and, he, and later in this story dies and is resurrected, ascends in glory. He is our risen, reigning king and he has broken the back of Satan, who still is fighting in his death throes. And when we come to that very frightening picture, those frightening pictures at the end of Revelation, we see him right before Jesus returns, as he promised to, that he might take this broken enemy and finally and utterly wipe him out and remove him and bring healing and restoration and peace like we have always dreamed of. He says, this, this victory has been won in principle here, and one day it is coming in all its fullness. And so now we live with the confidence knowing that we have a conquering and reigning king. Nothing is more powerful than him, not even the power of Satan, not even the power of Satan in our lives. And one day we are going to see the beauty of all of it gone, erased, conquered, defeated. It was good news for the readers of Mark. It was good news for this man who was so tormented. And it's good news for us as well. Again, as, as I said, you know, some of us maybe last week very much connected with the fact that, that Jesus has the power over all the storms of our world, literal weather storms and otherwise, that nothing happens outside of his control. And there is great comfort for you if you're in the middle of those things where you feel like life is beating you down. 
I think maybe some of the comfort of this passage comes for those of us that are really struggling, not so much with the storms on the outside, but the ones on the inside that threaten to tear us apart. And there's good news for us as well. Maybe we can say it most simply this way. Jesus is not afraid of you. He's not afraid of anything going on in your life. And there's nothing that has its grip on you that has a grip stronger than the hold, the hand, the power of our King Jesus. Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism is a Presbyterian document that, that has questions and answers helping us understand our faith and what the Bible teaches. Here, here's what question number 26 says as it speaks about Christ who is our king. It says, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Answer, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. How is Christ a king to us? He brings us to himself, and he ultimately defeats every one of his and our enemies. Christ our king, crushing Satan under his feet means for us, too, that nothing in your life is too dark, too terrible, too deep-seated, too intractable to bring before our God. That there is no inner storm, no life out of control that Christ cannot free. There's no control, there's no controlling sin or struggle that he cannot break. Jesus can handle the furthest of extremes, the total demonization of a man like this, and he can handle whatever you bring to him as well. I'll give you an example. Let's say you go, let's say you start having chest pains and you go to a cardiologist. You're going to someone who is equipped that if he needs to, he can lay you down on the table and give you the heart paddles right there. Or if it turns out that you're suffering, you know, from uh, indigestion, he's also the one that can handle it, hand you a Tums too, right? Anything in between. Jesus tells us, if I can handle this man I can handle you. If I can handle the power of Satan at work destroying this person, I can handle anything that is warring against your soul as well. Are you banking on this? you see seeing your life from this perspective. Are you coming to the struggles in your life with this hope that you have this kind of conquering king? Not just the one that can uh, arrange the situations of your life and protect you from the stuff around you, but the one who can come in and really bring healing on the inside are you looking at your life this way? Scripture tells us, come and look at life the way Scripture presents it to us here. This is what is true. You know, we said in the beginning, some of you are, love watching horror movies. In, in my Psych 101 class, uh, I remember the teacher talking. I've, I'm going to try to explain this. I've never been able to actually do it or figure it out. But here's what she said. She's talking about the fact that our right brain and our left brain, sides of our brain, process information differently, right? Left brain deals with all kind of the cognitive intellectual stuff. All the artsy uh, imaginative stuff comes from the right side. And so here's what she said. She said there's actually a way to watch things, a movie, for example, where you concentrate on watching it out of the right side of both eyes. I don't know how you're supposed to do that. 
But, some, but that sends the information to the left side of your brain, so it processes, it processes it with your cognitive ability. So what she said was, so if you're ever in a, in a horror movie, you can, you can watch it through the right side of your brain, and the part of your brain that says, oh, look at that silly man all dressed up with ketchup all over him, uh, takes over, and you're not frightened. And she said, conversely, if you're somebody who likes to be frightened, look at it from the left side of your eye, and you won't sleep for three weeks. <laughs> you know that, uh, that there is a way to process the things that is coming to you. I can't do that, but the Bible tells us this. That there is a way in which we are meant to, to process, to understand, to look at the struggles of our life, both on the outside and on the inside. And we are to look at it through this grid. We have a conquering king. That is what is true. And that is to color the way we look at everything and the way we think about ourselves and the way we understand our own struggles and the way we can then be free to look to God in hope. Because we do have a conquering king. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do pray as we come to you. That you would set us free in every way we need to be set free. And Father, we thank you that though our enemy is real, as we will sing here in a little bit, lo, his doom is sure that you have come to conquer all evil. And you've come to rescue us from everything that binds us. So I pray that you would bring freedom and hope and renewal for us even this week as we struggle. May we do it in light of our King. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.